The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We are going to be moving into a very challenging bit of text today. Uh, last week we wrapped up chapter 5. We did it all in one week. It was the genealogy of Seth. And if you're with us last week, we, we, we looked at, at this Seth being sort of the replacement of Abel. God blessed Adam and Eve with another son named Seth. He had a son named Enosh. And, and, and chapter 5 of Genesis is the genealogy that brings us up to Noah. If you were here last week, we saw the faithfulness of God uh, as he reigned above the, the death that we saw in the text we saw the blessing of God or the faithfulness of God in, in Enoch who had defeated death and it kind of pointed us toward, toward Jesus. This week in chapter 6, we're going to look at the first eight verses. Um, these quite possibly are the most debated verses in all of Genesis uh, and some of the most debated verses in all of the scriptures. But let's uh, together, let's look at the first eight verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And the, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open up this text and as we read these words, God, I confess that there's some difficulty in understanding and interpreting these words. God, would you give us eyes today as your church to see the things you would have us to see? God, by, by, the, by, the, uh, God, by the opening of our eyes, by the movement of your spirit within us, God, would you give us conviction and would you give us understanding? Would you hear, help us to hear your words in this text today? God, help us to respond in obedience to the things you reveal, Lord. We invite you to meet us in this place. God, we are yours. Love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice what we see right there in verse 5, the first three words of verse 5, the Lord saw. The Lord saw. In these eight verses, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, he's giving us really God's perspective. We have an opportunity to don the lenses of God as we look upon the face of the earth in this pre-flood state. In our outline, we're going we're to see three things today. I want to give you a heads up of what we're going to go through today. We're going to see what God sees. We're going to see the grievous depravity of man. We're going to see what God feels. We're going we're to feel the grief in the heart of God. And, and the last thing that we're going to see today is we're going to see what God does in verse 8. We're going to see grace 
through Noah. We're going to see what God sees, we're going to see what God feels, and we're going to see what God does. I wish that was my outline. That was actually something Sam Peck shared with us on Tuesday in our study, and I stole it for my outline today because I thought it was so good. Uh, one of the great things in our life and, and about relationship for being human beings is that we get to see the world through different eyes. That's one of the blessings of relationship, right? When we enter into a relationship with another person, we are invited to then see the world through their perspective. That's what a relationship does. And, and oftentimes, when we're looking at the world through the lens of another, it presses up against our own selfishness. It, it's very difficult to be in a meaningful relationship and to be utterly selfish. Amen? One of the things I, hate, I love about marriage and one of the things I hate about marriage is how it exposes my selfishness. I've been married to my wife almost 22 years. We've been together for 24 years. And I have had to learn over the years to see things from a different perspective. God has blessed me with a wife who loves me. And she speaks truth into my life, especially when it needs to happen. She doesn't yell, doesn't scream, doesn't attack. But when the time comes, when I need to see something that I'm not seeing... My wife and our life has had a tendency to sit me down and in love speak hard words of truth into my life because she sees something that I'm blind to. I'm so thankful for that. The other day, her and I were praying, and as I was praying, I recognized the painful prayer I was praying. I prayed that God would continue to use us in each other's lives as an instrument of sanctification. An instrument of sanctification is like a chisel that chisels away at a block of stone. It's painful, it hurts, but it brings godliness that's what a relationship does. God has used Becky in my life to sharpen me and to mold me. She's allowed me to see things from a perspective I never would have seen in my selfishness. When someone who loves you says, listen, see what I see, it's an invitation to step out of our selfish bubble and see something that we were unable to see on our own. Today, as we look at this text, we're allowed to see the text, we're allowed to see the world through the eyes of God. We're allowed to look at the text today and see what God sees. We're allowed to see what God feels, and we get to see what God does. We get to see the very eyes of God upon depraved humanity. Because as we unpack this text, you're going to see that humanity was so caught up in sin, they just didn't get it. It was, it was a part of the culture. It was everywhere. It was normalized. And then as we dawn the lens of God, we see what he actually saw, and it's shocking. Our text today introduces us to the flood narrative, and, and it's cryptic, and it's debated, and these verses are often disagreed about. But even though there's a lot that's unclear in our text today, the most important thing about our text is very clear. Our passage today tells us what was going on in the pre-flood world. Our text tells us today about a humanity that had spiraled into a new level of grievous and sinful depravity. Now, these first four verses, like I said earlier, are probably some of the most debated verses in all of Scripture. They're strange, and they're interesting, and they're, and they're mysterious, which has led to a lot of different interpretations. But as one scholar says, he says, the point of this cryptic passage, whichever way we take it, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil with God's bounds overstepped in yet another realm. So above the debates, and we're going to get into these, we're going to get into the weeds here in a few minutes. We're going to unpack some of the different interpretations of the first four verses here in Genesis 6. But as we get into this passage, as we get into the weeds a little bit, uh, we're, going to, we're going to see what's, what's most important. We're going to see the larger intent of this passage. These verses help us understand why God sent a flood. We get a glimpse into what it was that grieved the heart of God, and why the judgment of a global flood was necessary. So the first thing I would encourage you to notice as we go back to, to verses 1 through 5, the first thing I want you to notice is I want you to see what God saw. What did God see? Well, he saw the grievous depravity of man. 
This is what God saw. This is what these first five verses unpacked. God saw the grievous depravity of man. Let's read those verses again. Verses 1 through 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days, also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, this wickedness that exists on the face of the earth in this time is not just pervasive. The wickedness of the pre-flood world wasn't just increasing. Mankind wasn't just mostly evil. The, the language here tells us that the evil wickedness of humankind was in total fullness. It wasn't just some or most of the people that were wicked. It was all of humanity. Look at the language here in verse 5. The wickedness of man was great. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a picture here of a humanity that was fully and completely depraved. As we start to get into some of the disputed aspects of verses 1 and 4, don't lose sight of the big picture here. We have to see what God sees. What does God see when he looks upon the pre-flood world? He sees the grievous depravity of humankind. Now with that in full view, let's, let's take a few moments to look a little closer at some of the debated aspects of our text. There are three major debates that are contained within these three verses. If you want to take notes, I'd encourage you to take notes. Here's the three debates. Debate number one, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man in verse two? We're going to talk about that here in a moment. Debate number two, what does it mean when God says that man's days shall be 120 years in verse three? I'll try to answer that. Debate number three, who are the Nephilim, the mighty men, and the men of renown in verse four? Now listen, People who are way smarter than you and me have been looking at these passages for thousands of years. They love Jesus. They're biblical scholars and experts in the dead languages. They know far more than we know, and they don't agree on these issues. And so anytime we have a discussion about issues where there is not consensus among, among scholarship or among Christianity, we have to have humility in our hearts. We have to approach it with non-divisiveness. Because there are endless rabbit trails we could get ourselves caught on as we try to understand and interpret these texts. Last week I reminded us that Genesis was not written to satisfy every human curiosity. There is so much human curiosity in these few verses. Our job as Bible readers is to keep our eyes on what God is saying. And our job is to not try to force God to say something that we want him to say when we read the scriptures. We cannot lose focus of the intent of this text because God is saying something important to us. In this passage today, what's he saying? He's saying that apart from him, apart from God, humankind will choose depravity. Apart from the grace of God at work in the life of humankind, mankind will ultimately slide into grievous depravity. This text is reminding us today what the scriptures always remind us of. We need God. We need him. We're desperate for him. Let's not lose sight of that as we get down into some of these weeds and some of these debates in Christianity. One scholar puts it this way, more important than the detail of this episode 
is its indication that man is beyond self-help. We need God. Okay, let's, let's just talk about the debates, all right? Debate number one, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? We could have heated debates outside. We're going to solve it right here. We're going to decide. I'm just kidding. We're not going to decide. What are there? So verses one and two says that man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive as they took uh, as their wives any they chose. There's three main interpretations on who the sons of God are. The first interpretation says that the sons of God, here in verse 2, are referring to the godly sons of Seth. Remember chapter 5 was the Sethite genealogy. Seth was the replacement of Abel, the godly line. So the, the one interpretation simply says that when we read the phrase, the sons of God, it's referring to the Sethite genealogy, the Sethite descendants. Okay, simple enough. Second interpretation says, no, no, no. These sons of God are these iconic, mythical heroes of old that are, that are written about in other extra-biblical accounts. They're these, these royalty that existed on the face of the earth. That's who the sons of God are here. Okay, that's another interpretation. The third interpretation, and probably the most sensational, says that these sons of God are angelic beings. They're fallen angels. They're, they're demons who somehow personified on earth and intermarried with the daughters of men. Those are the three interpretations. Let's look at the first one. Those who hold to the view that the sons of God are, are the godly line of Seth, they say, here's the problem. Here, here's the Sethites, it's, it, you know, God's promised line through which the promised seed was going to come. They're on the face of the earth, and now they're intermarrying with the daughters of men. Who are the daughters of men? They would say, well, the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain. Do you remember Cain in chapter 4? He was evil Cain who killed Abel. He was apart from God. And so the challenge is that the godly men of Seth are marrying the ungodly evil daughters of Cain, and that's the problem. It's contaminating the line of God through which the promised seed is going to come. That's the grievous sin. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation that says that the sons of God are, are these kings or heroes of the mythical past, they look at verse 4 which says the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. And, and they talk about mighty men of old and men of renown and they, and they look at some of the, 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 the cultures that existed that, that have written about the ancient world and, and they see this language of these mythical heroes and these royalty and they say this was the daughters of men uh, intermarrying with these mythical heroes and that's how these, these men of renown and these mighty men were, were birthed. That's a third, second view. Well, then the third view, the most sensational view, holds that the sons of God are angelic beings that came to earth to engage in perverse sexuality with human women. People who hold to this view look at that phrase, sons of God, and they say, hey, no other place, like about four or five other times, the phrase sons of God appears in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, book of Daniel, and every time we see the phrase sons of God, it always refers to angelic beings and it never refers to humans. So why would this be referring to humans when every other time in the Old Testament, sons of God refers to angelic beings? Okay, that's one view. They say, and then if you look at the language of, of, of 1 and 2 Peter and, and Jude, these epistles in the, in the New Testament, fallen angels are, are associated with the flood account. So they say there's, there's text evidence in the Old and New Testament that these sons of God are in fact demons or fallen angels. Additionally, the, the, the most accepted interpretation and the oldest interpretation of this phrase for years and years and years was always that the sons of God 
were fallen angels or demons. So those are the three views. Those are quick, quick, quick defenses of those three perspectives. My hope today was to not pick an interpretive lane because I'm not smart enough to say this is the right one and these other two are wrong because there's not agreement. So in humility, I wanted to present them to you. As I studied these three views, I could see how all three could potentially be the right interpretation of these first four verses of Genesis 6. As I looked at this last perspective, it just seems so sensational and it seems so unbelievably grievous. The level of perversion contained, if, if in fact the sons of God were fallen angels, it's a terrifying and grossly depraved scene. Just consider with me, if you will, angelic beings in rebellion to God taking on flesh. How could, how could angelic beings have taken on flesh? Well, when you look at you know, Sodom, where Lot is in Sodom, and angels visit Lot. Remember, the men of the town mistook the angels for human beings, and they surrounded the house, and they wanted to engage in sexual activity with the angels. And so the idea of angels being personified is not that far of a fetch. One scholar says, well, uh, these demonic beings that fell, they, they simply in, they, they indwelt human beings, and it was demonically possessed men that were the sons of God. Who knows? But the picture here is a terrifying scene. Uh, the sons of God looking upon the face of the earth with predatory eyes. And they, they, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive or good to look at. And they took as their wives any they chose. They saw it was good and they took. Does that remind you of another place in Genesis? Of Adam and Eve in chapter 3, the base of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. In both the garden and here among the daughters of men, something good in God's creation is used for disobedience and sinful rebellion against God with tragic consequences. And it's very likely, if this is the case, it's very likely these sons of God took wives against their will but with the approval of their fathers. Kent Hughes, a biblical scholar and a pastor, he, he paints this as a, as a reflection of a culture that has been utterly bankrupt morally. Here's what he says about this scene. He says, just how low culture had gotten is evidenced by the apparent parental complicity in the marriage of their daughters to the demonic sons of God. There's no hint that these were anything but proper marriages. In the ancient world, there was not supposed to be any marriages apart from parental approval. Therefore, we must understand the girls' fathers as encouraging these unions, just as pagan fathers push their daughters into fertility cults. When one considers the fantastical nature of fallen angels, demons, intermarrying with human beings, it's just it's hard for us to wrap our mind around is we imagine demonic beings engaging in devious, grievous sexual activity. We can't even begin to fathom what that would even mean. But then I ran into this quote by Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar. Here's what Gordon says. He said, If the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the Creator could unite Himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. Okay, whether the sons of God are fallen angels, mythical heroes of old, or simply the descendants of Seth, we're still left with the same conclusion. Mankind, in their unbridled debauchery and depravity, is beyond help. Left to his own devices, humanity will spiral. The picture here is of a humanity 
that is an absolute sexual depravity. Which leads us to the second disputed text. Go to verse 3. What are these 120 years about? This is the second debate. People can't agree. What, when, when, when God says, uh, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. What is God saying? What is that 120 years? The last time we saw God speak, it was in chapter 5, when he was in love, like a loving father, naming humankind a man. And now in this text, with a grieved heart, God is announcing he's putting a 120-year limit on human beings. What is this 120-year limit? Well, there's two main interpretations. The first view is that God was placing limitation upon human lifespan. God is saying in the future, humans will live no more than 120 years. And there's some evidence in the Bible as we look at the generations that unfold in Genesis that lifespans are drastically reduced. Moses died at 120 years. It's possible that as God looked at the depravity of humankind after these long lifespans recorded in chapter 5, that with the long lifespans, humankind was able to perfect their depravity. So God says, I'm not going to give you this much time to perfect your sin. I'm going to limit your, your lifespan. That could be a, a, an accepted interpretation of the 120 years. Other scholars say that God was giving a 120-year warning until he was going to send floodwaters across the face of the earth. He's given, he's given Moses 100, or Noah 120 years to build an ark. What God is essentially saying, he's saying to the depraved humanity, I I'm going to give you 120 years of grace to get it right, to turn and repent from this grievousness with which I am watching. And that's not outside of the character of God. Our God is a patient God. He loves. I'm reminded of the words of 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish but that all should reach repentance. And so both interpretations make sense. We can arm wrestle after service to figure out which one's the right one. I don't know. Debate number three. What is the deal with the Nephilim? My brother is obsessed with this, with this verse. Him and I were on the phone a lot this week. He has read everything there is to read about the Nephilim. What is the deal with the Nephilim in verse four? Other translations call the Nephilim giants. The phrase Nephilim literally means fallen ones. And only one other time in Scripture does this phrase appear. It appears when the Israelites are looking at Canaan and they see the giants that are in the land of Canaan, they call them Nephilim. Now, this is such a debated text. And, and there are so many dangerous rabbit trails you can get down if you're, if you're not careful when it comes to this disputed text. There's so many questions, so much speculation. Who are they? Where did the Nephilim come from? Are they the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men? And if, they're, if, the, if the sons of God were, in fact, fallen angels, are these some weird spiritual human hybrid? Are, are these a race of humans that predates uh, the perversion of humankind? Were the Nephilim always on earth? Is that what the text is saying? Are these Nephilim the contributors to the violence we read about later on in, in chapter 6? There's some historical context here. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he says that the, the ancient kingdoms around Israel claimed to be founded and protected by Nephilim or, or giant warrior kings who were, part of, who were part human and part God and filled with divine wisdom. There are so many rabbit trails. There's so many interesting things we could talk about when it comes to the Nephilim. But at the end of the day, we don't know with certainty who they are and their identity. And, it's, and how we interpret the Nephilim doesn't influence the intent of the text. With all those disputed texts and uncertainty, there's one thing that is certain in our passage today. The world has grown wicked in every sense. We are invited to see what God sees. He sees grievous depravity of humankind. And it's very likely that those living on the earth, since every human being was caught up in this depravity, they didn't get it. 
It's like a fish doesn't know he's in water. They didn't realize how depraved humankind was. They didn't realize how perverse the world had become. They're, they're living their lives. They're, they're going on with life. They're getting up and going to work and going to bed and, and, and entering into relationships, living in a culture where unspeakable things had become normal. They were blind to the depraved reality of their situation. But we are invited, because we're outside of it, to look and to see what God sees. God sees a grievous humanity that is depraved in every way. Which leads us to ask the question, what do you suppose God sees when he looks at humankind today? What do you suppose God sees right now as he looks down upon humankind, as he looks at our world? I can, I can tell you what I see sometimes, right? I'm sure you see it too. When I look at humanity, I see violence and I see hatred and I see death and immorality and greed and oppression. I also see how easy it is for me at times to just make that normal and live as a fish lives in water and not notice it. And then when I narrow the focus of our passage today to the focus, uh, it, it was a focus on sexual depravity in Genesis 6. So if I just look through that lens at the world today, I see at least four ways in which our world is, is, is deeply depraved. I see those in positions of power abusing those in positions of servitude for sexual gratification. I see perversion that is celebrated in our culture. I see pornography that is normalized in our culture. And I see the ultimate manifestation of a sexually perverse culture when human beings, when people are sold in sex slavery, right? This is, the, this is what's happening within our culture. We've all seen people in positions of power abusing that power for the sake of sexual gratification. The, the news reels are rife with these stories. The Harvey Weinsteins, the Jeffrey Epsteins, the Bill Cosbys of the world, but it's not immune to the church, Right? We've seen the heartbreaking scandal of the Catholic priest's sex abuse. We've seen it in the Southern Baptist Convention. We see it in Ravi Zacharias, celebrated evangelical leader who was caught up in perversion and in predatorial behavior. So we see depravity when power is abused for sexual gratification. We see perversion celebrated. I don't need to convince you of this. I think of the anti-biblical sexuality that is a mainstream culture today. I think of the, sin the sinful and perverse expressions of sex that are celebrated in all facets of life, it's normal. Then I think of the normalization of pornography, or what some would call the, the pornification of society. I'm sure you've all heard the quotes, the mind-blowing pornography statistics, the multi-billion dollar year industry that pornography has become, the prevalence of porn in all facets of life, and church is not immune. The statistics are pretty staggering when it comes to the, the, the problem of porn within the pews. 70% of church-going men, 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. I'm not saying that to shame anybody. I'm just saying that's the reality. Young adults age 18 to 24 in the church, 76% of which are viewing porn on a regular basis. Over The majority of pastors recognize that pornography is one of the biggest challenges facing the marriages in their church. 87% of women in church admit to have viewing porn, have, having viewed pornography. So this is an issue that has come into the church as well. And I think when you and I think of pornography, we tend to think of... of um, Pornography in the classic sense, the, the, where you have to go to the, the CD store on the corner or you have to go to a, uh, an explicit website. But I, I was in the car the other day and I was driving down Hillcrest coming to work and I'm listening to this stupid rock station that I listen to. I like 80s rock, judge me. And I'm driving down and I'm listening to this stupid radio show. It's a morning show and I've listened to it a few times. And I just, it just struck me this week. It's like, do all you ever talk about is sex in this stupid show? 
Every stupid little anecdote you share is perverse and it's disgusting and it's so normal. And I walk through the aisle at the grocery store and every magazine is about sex or it's got some sexually suggestive picture. I flip through the channels, it's about sex. Watch the Emmys, oh my gosh, don't watch the Emmys, it's about sex. You flip on Netflix, half the shows on Netflix, they're, 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 they're cast to us as, as entertainment or as arts, but it's perverse. I mean, I sound like an old man shaking my fist at cars driving by, too, but the reality, our society has become pornified, and we don't even get it because it's like the air that we breathe and the water that fish swim in. It's everywhere. And what happens when we just become desensitized to the pornification of our society is it begins to manifest in more grotesque forms of perversion. I've seen this as a pastor so many times. The pornification of society leads to unspeakable depravity. Did you know in 2018, 45 million images of child sex abuse were reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children? 45 million in 2018. In 2019, 70 million. And by 2020, there was almost a 70% increase in child pornography images that were being peddled across the internet. Do you see the increasing depravity in society? Child sex exploitation, the recording of child sex exploitation is one of the fastest growing online businesses. See, and it's not a leap to go from this level of depravity to human beings being sold in a global human trafficking economy. It's so hard for us to think about that, right? We're just sitting here. We don't get it. We, most of us have never been affected by human trafficking. And so we just don't even think about it. We don't think about the fact there's 25 million human beings on planet Earth today that are slaves. 25 million Five million of which are sex slaves today on planet Earth. In America, there's 300,000 people that are in slavery, 57,000 new men and women and children introduced to slavery every year in America. When, when it finally gets brought to, to a, a judge or there's legal action against these human traffickers, over half of the cases involve exclusively child sexual exploitation. And I know I share the statistics, you're like, okay, I hear it, I heard it on the evening news, and it's hard for us because it's just a bunch of numbers, but what about if you begin to think about this on a more personal level? One survey said that 49% of sexually exploited women said that they were made to perform pornography while being forced. So when we have a, a kind of a, a, a cavalier attitude about pornography, we don't recognize the way in which our cavalier attitude towards pornography is supporting and endorsing just the exploitation of, of countless individuals. Reports indicate that the largest number of sex trafficking survivors in the United States were at one time in the foster care system. Would you imagine with me a 12-year-old girl whose family abandoned her in every way, emotionally, spiritually, physically, victimized her, didn't care for her, didn't show her love, 12 years old, she ends up in the foster care system because no one else will have her. And then some predator online figures out a way to get into her head, tells her he'll love her, he'll care for her. She gets caught up in that. Did you know the average age of girls who get brought into the sex industry in the United States is between 12 and 14? This is happening right now. What do you think God sees when he looks upon the face of the earth today? You know, I tell you what, we're doing a Conquer series tonight. I had a chance to sit through a, an introduction to the Conquer series this week. And I get it. I understand how insidious pornography can be. How evil and how, 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 how craftily the evil one gets into our hearts and minds with pornography. I understand this. I'm telling you right now, man, if you are in this room and this is a problem for you, swallow your stinking pride. Your children need you. Your wife needs you. Society needs you. Your church needs you. The problem isn't, isn't that you're a peeping Tom. It's, 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 uh, 
is uh, John Piper says, the problem is that when men are caught up in, especially when Christian men are caught up in, a, in, in this problem of pornography, they just, they, it assassinates any sense of call. You say, I'm, I'm a, such a pervert, I'm so broken, I'm so caught up in this habitual sin and I can't get out of it, God could never use me. So we have a generation of men that have laid aside their calling and instead they click in front of a computer screen. Man, I'm, I'm just, this is me saying, I get it, I'm not shaming you, I'm not, this is not shame. This is me as your friend, as your brother, as your pastor saying, if this is you, if this is something you are struggling with, we have a place for you. 6 p.m. tonight, the hub, go. Please, I'm begging you. Your church needs you. Your family needs you. The city needs you. Part of me, when I look at all of this, I, uh, I have two extreme responses. Maybe you do too. Part of me gets angry, angry at myself, angry at just the depravity of the world, and, and sometimes it wants to slip into sinful anger. And then the other part is I just get overwhelmed. I mean, 25 million sex slaves? Are you kidding me? A, a, a pornography uh, uh, industry that, that generates more revenue than all professional sports combined? It's like, what can I do? And so then I want to slip into slothful apathy. And I wish I could give you a five-point plan for how we as the church are going to attack and address this. Here, here's what I know. I know that we're all sitting in this room today. I know that those of us with the Spirit of God bringing conviction in our lives, whichever way that means, that, that, that God is working in this room and he's working in your life and my life. And though I don't know how to overcome a 25 million uh, uh, member uh, sl slavery industry that exists within the world, I, I do know how to be obedient in this moment. And i got to trust God with the magnitude of the problem that faces the world. But what I can do is I can be obedient in this moment. And as we listen to this, maybe God is stirring in your heart to just to trust him individually, to, 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 to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this issue of depravity that's in my own life. Or maybe God is stirring in your heart to say, you know what, I'm not going to sit in the pews anymore. There are people in our city, there are neighbors, there are people that need to know that there is hope. Maybe God is stirring in your heart to get up and to be a part of the solution. I don't know. I wish I had a cleaner answer for you. I know that Jesus is the answer. The first thing that God wants us to see here is he wants us to see the grievous depravity of humankind. Second thing I'd encourage you to notice is what we see in verses 6 and 7. We get to see what God feels as he looks upon the depravity. And we see grief in his heart. God invites us to see what he feels, and we see grief in his heart. The Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, it says in verse 6, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. As God looked at the staggering sum of man's sin, it sorrowed his heart. He was grieved, it caused him pain. And he was sorry that he had made man. The King James Version uh, translates that, that, for it repenteth the Lord that he made man. In other words, God looked at what he had done, and repentance means a 180. God wanted to undo the things he did. He was so grieved by the depravity of man, he wanted to decreate the thing that he had created. The deviancy that he looked upon was so wretched. It was so total, so complete. This was as evil and as wicked as people could possibly become, and so God... He goes from creating the land and the birds and the creeping things and the animals and the mankind to decreating it. He describes the, his plan to destroy the land and the birds and the creeping things and the animals and man. God goes from looking at creation in chapter 1 and loving creation and saying it is very good 
to looking at creation in chapter 6. With grief in his heart, he regrets that he made him. We're invited to see what God feels. You and I are invited to feel the grief in his heart. Now, as I considered the grievous depravity of man this week and the grief that it brought God's heart, I was, I was angry at how wicked the world was in Genesis 6. And as I just unpacked for you a few moments ago, I was angry at how wicked the world is. But then I stopped and I said, but Paul, what about you? Paul, what about your own life? I found myself looking in the mirror. Now, certainly I'm not acting out in the wretched ways I've described earlier. But Lord knows I'm not without sin. The words of Jesus came to mind. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Or the words of Jesus to the angry mob who was going to stone the adulterous woman. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And I asked myself, Paul, what is the log in your own eye? What is the water that you are in as a fish that you haven't even noticed? How have you slipped and allowed the, the culture of depravity to, in, to influence you and your own family and your own mind and your own life? What is the sin that I possess? To what degree have I been swept up in a culture that is sliding further and further in depravity? And then came the ultimate question. And here's the ultimate question. I asked myself, God, what do you see when you look at me? What do you feel when you look over my life? Not just my observable life, but God, when you look at my private life, my inner life, my hidden life, my thought life, what do you see and what do you feel? I felt conviction. What about you? What do you suppose God feels when he looks over your life? If Jesus were in this room today or if he was sitting next to you and he was looking intently at your private life, if he was looking at your inner life, your hidden life, your thought life, what would Jesus see? Now, if you're like me, the temptation might be to feel condemnation. Like, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed at the hidden sin in my life. I'm so ashamed at the thoughts that this brain thinks. I'm so ashamed. But I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Shame does not belong in this conversation. Jesus was condemned on the cross so that you and I don't have to be. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I am not up here to shame anybody. But as we consider as followers of Jesus the truth that the, the wrath that my depravity deserves, the punishment that my sin, my perverse sin deserves was poured out on Christ on Calvary's cross. He was condemned for me on the cross in my place that I may stand redeemed and forgiven. There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, which takes us to the final point. After we see what God sees and we feel what God feels, we get to see what God does. We see grace through Noah. We get to see what God does. We see grace through Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, it says in verse 8. In the very next verse, in chapter 6, verse 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah was the only man on the face of the earth who didn't get caught up with this cultural ethic. He wasn't swept up in the cultural uh, perversion that was taking place. 
Can you imagine how his peers must have seen him? Can you imagine the pressures that Noah must have been under as the only man who wasn't engaging in this perverse activity? The, 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 the winds of culture must have just pressed heavy against Noah, but he didn't bend. And as God's eyes scanned across the wickedness of the world, they found favor when they scanned across Noah. See what God sees in Noah. He's a righteous man. And because of his righteousness, because of his piety, Noah is rescued from the looming annihilation. So we are invited to see what God sees. We're invited to see grace in Noah. But you might be thinking, but Paul, doesn't God destroy the entire earth? How is that gracious? Doesn't he wipe out everything on the face of the planet? That doesn't feel like grace to me. But I'm reminded of the, of the promise God made when he spoke to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, when he said that the seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan. It's the first preaching of the gospel. And it was going to be through the line of Eve that he would bring this head-crushing seed. And so as this perversion is taking uh, grips over the planet, and as whether it's angels or, or, or godless Canaanites or Canaanites or, or the royalty that existed in the world at that time, is they're trying to contaminate the godly line of Seth through which Jesus would one day come God looks at the face of the earth he sees the perversion and he says I'm going to preserve a line I'm going to bring Jesus it's going to come through Eve and Noah and Abraham and David and Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the one who takes on condemnation so that my people don't have to and so in his grace he says I'm not going to let this line be perverted and contaminated anymore I'm going to wipe it all out but I'm going to preserve the one so he can carry on my promise this is the grace of God seen in the flood. And then I look at what, what God was doing. As he was making plans to bring destruction and decreate the things he had made, he was making plans to bring a deliverer. The only truly righteous one. Yeah, Noah was righteous in the sight of God, but he still sinned. We see that in Genesis chapter 9. There's only one truly righteous one. His name is Jesus. And so what did God do? in his ultimate divine plan, whose ultimate divine plan was to send one in which he would promise a new heart. Remember the depraved heart of humanity that broke God's heart? Only God can transform the heart. Are you reminded of the language of the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah? When he's speaking of the new covenant that Jesus would bring in, God says in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We see God's grace in that in and through the work of Christ, he takes away these evil, wicked hearts, and he gives us new hearts. He puts a new spirit within us. He causes us to walk as he would have us walk. He writes his laws on our hearts. Jesus did this for us. The 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God makes us righteous through his son, Jesus. So that when he looks at us, he no longer sees our depravity. He sees the righteousness of his son covering us. We are in Christ. This is what Colossians says. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what does God see when he looks at those of us that are in Christ? He sees his son. He sees righteousness. The condemnation that our sin deserves was poured out on Christ. That justice was satisfied on the cross. And you know, honestly, as I, as I, I don't even know how to wrap up my sermon. I struggled to write a conclusion to this sermon. I thought about the tension between sinful anger and slothful apathy and how are we supposed to be. But at the end of the day, you know what I was reminded of? I was reminded of the hope that we have in the gospel 
Only God can give you and me a new heart. Can't do it ourselves. Can't self-will it. Only God can remove the heart of stone that that turns towards sin every time. And only God can give us a heart of flesh, an obedient heart. Only God has said that he will put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. When I look at the the depravity of the world around me, when I look at the depravity in my own heart, I'm I'm overwhelmed when I think about how, how how do we do this? What is God calling Heritage Christian Fellowship to do in face of this depravity? And I'm I'm reminded, like, listen, if we want to see a world transformed, if we want to see a community transformed, if we want to see a family transformed, if we want to see a a life transformed, only God transforms hearts. Only God. It's only through the work of Jesus. So here's what I know for sure. I don't know the strategy. But I know that your heart is only transformed when you turn it over to Jesus, when you trust him. And it's only through a transformed heart that a life is transformed, that a family is transformed, that a neighborhood is transformed, that a community is transformed, that a country is transformed, that the world goes forth and the world is transformed for the glory of God. I get it. It's easy to get frustrated and angry and want to shake our fists. But as we head into the Easter season, we get to, we get to reorient our souls, don't we, next week. We get to remember when Jesus rode into the city at the waving of palm branches, they thought he was going to sit on the throne, an earthly throne. He was going to lay down his life that he would ascend to the throne of heaven. On Easter Sunday, we get to focus on the resurrected Jesus. Only he can overcome sin and death. He is our only hope. And the same power that raised Christ Jesus is at work in you and me. We get to uphold the gospel because that is our only hope. See what God sees. See what God feels and see what God does with me. Father, I'm so thankful for this text. And God, I know that there's so much contained in these verses. And God, I I confess just a, a cluttered mind this week and a struggle with wanting to not be confusing up here and uh, not wanting to confuse the, the people of heritage, God. I confess just a, a concern for what people would think of me personally, God. That's just gross. And so, God, I, I just pray that as, as we gather right now, God, as our heads are, are bowed and as we just consider just this amazing truth, God, that you, 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 through the work of your son, Jesus, by the power of the gospel, you, you, you replace our hearts. You do heart transplants. You take these wicked hearts that want to turn away from you, God, and you give us a tender response of heart that desires to honor you and, and walk with you and glorify you, God. You transform our hearts. You transform our lives, not for our glory, but for yours. And so, God, I'm mindful today of just of the men and women that are in this place, God, and, and, and all over the map we are. God, there's some of us in here that are just amening in our spirit because we just want to be a part of what you're doing. We want to be a part of, of putting our hand to the gospel work that will transform lives and, and people and situations. And, and so, God, I pray that you would bolster us that are in that camp right now. God, I'm mindful that there are many in this room who are feeling the weight of conviction, especially as we talk about the, the insidious nature of sexual sin. And so, God, you are such an awesome and forgiving and redeeming God. God, rather than shirk away from you in shame, would you, by the, by the prompting of your spirit, God, would you just, God, would you give us eyes to look to you and to finally, maybe for the first time in our lives, relinquish control? God, would you give us the courage in this moment to confess to you the sins that we have kept hidden that have prevented us from being the people you want us to be? God, for those in this room who've never trusted in you, who've just kind of walked in our own self-will, we've never recognized our need for a heart transplant, God, would you just, by the power of your spirit right now, open our eyes to the hope of the gospel, the truth of your son Jesus, that he was condemned for us, that we don't have to be condemned, that we can be forgiven and declared righteous. God, would you help us to confess with our mouth that Jesus, you are Lord. 
God, you have raised him from the dead. God, we're not interested in just sitting in pews and taking up space on a Sunday morning. God, we want to be your church. God, we ask that you would move among us. God, you would stir in our hearts and minds that you would mobilize this body of believers, God, to be your church in the city and beyond. God, may it start in our homes and in our own lives, but God, may it spill out these doors for your glory. God, we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.